This week, I'm going to be talking about the tale of Peredir. Now, I've left Peredir for last, not because it's necessarily my favourite or the best one, but because I think when we're discussing Peredir, it's good good to get a grounding in the other two romances first, um, mainly because many of the motifs and elements are repeated uh, throughout all the three romances, but they kind of accumulate in Peredir. Peredir really makes use of many of the motifs found in both Owain and Geraint and uh, the four branches of the Mabinogi and several other uh, medieval Welsh prose classics. And as I'll be discussing in this session, um, Peredir also has many similarities with Irish storytelling. Now, very generally speaking, as one of the three romances, again, Peredir bears many similarities to one of Chrétien de Troyes' stories, this time uh, Percival. But it's not so much that the Welsh Peredir of the 13th century has been derived from the old French Percival of the 12th century, it's more likely that both the Old French and Welsh versions have both been derived from an earlier source, um, uh, this time almost certainly Geoffrey uh, of Monmouth's um, uh, telling of the history of Britain. Now, I'm not going to cover that so much this session, but it's worth knowing that as a text it relates to the old French version and to the earlier writings of Geoffrey of Monmouth, that it's part of the same milieu, if you like, um, that came late to Wales in many ways, um, but still bears all the features of this intensely patriarchal aristocracy. And I don't know what it is about Peredir, but I, I can't help but have a little chuckle every now and again because it's so naive and so blatantly immature uh, in some of the ways it presents masculinity. It's kind of laughable. Now, that might be because of the generation of storytellers in the 13th century were so heavily influenced by the continental styles um, uh, particularly through uh, the influence of um, Norman culture uh, in Britain, that maybe they'd lost sight of the type of masculinity that's really celebrated in stories such as Cilwch and Dolwen. Uh, and the masculinity of Cilwch and Dolwen is a far more sturdy and uh, sort of durable um, type of heroic ideal. And when we compare it to what we find in the three romances, they're just a little bit too childlike in their approach. It's this whole notion of, you know, one great knight being able to defeat a whole host because he fights them all one by one, as if warfare has ever been about honour and fairness uh, and rules of engagement in the medieval period. There almost certainly were 
those types of engagement uh, in the Celtic Iron Age. Uh, but again, you know, skirmishes, including lots of men, um, sometimes women, attacking each other to try and steal stuff off each other. They weren't really playing by any rules but the rules of violence most of the time, I'd be imagining. And particularly in the medieval period where um, you have mass warfare, you know, large bodies of armed troops attacking each other. Of course, there were certain rules governing warfare, but fundamentally, it's just carnage, yeah? It's so far removed from this idea of the individual lone, super powerful knight, you know, vanquishing, you know, 300 men one after each other and demanding that they hand over their lands uh, and just taking their word for it. Like, it's it's an in intensely naive way of portraying warfare and uh, the warrior elite. And it does make me wonder whether the three romances in many ways are stories for uh, not just young men, but maybe even for teenagers, if not children. Now, the only reason why we might assume that they're not for children or teenagers is because they do still contain a degree of symbolic potency. I'm not sure if the storytellers that gave us the versions of the three romances that we have necessarily understood the symbolic potency or content of the stories, but it appears as if somewhere during the evolution of the, of the tales, some storytellers at least did understand um, symbolic meaning, uh, how to evoke uh, a deeper understanding, how to convey these almost allegorical lessons in these stories. That is obviously still part of the tradition, but I'm not sure if the, the scribes or the storytellers that gave us these versions really understood that because they're inconsistent in many ways. So Peredir contains similar effects, if you like, as the other romances. Many of the same motifs are repeated. It appears as if the written version is probably not a purely oral version in that in the writing of the text, the storyteller, scribe, author, whoever has condensed as much of the traditional law concerning Pereder in the story, which really gives us a quite a muddled story. Now, even though it's quite muddled, whoever the scribe or storyteller was has tried to give it some kind of cohesion by using the uh, often misunderstood technique of interlacing. Uh, interlacing, of course, is uh, where a storyteller echoes one episode in another episode, thereby stressing uh, a thematic continuity between the two episodes, drawing the audience's attention to those episodes and the underlying theme that connects them. But the interlacings don't really work as interlacings. They're more just like um, cheap, easy connections to be made. And there's a really awful attempt at the very end of Peredir to try and list several reasons for why things happened in an attempt to tie off some loose ends. But it doesn't really work. It's quite weak. 
Um, so what I'm going to be doing over the next few sessions is just looking at specific episodes and treating them almost as whole and independent stories. And this would have been a feature of oral storytelling where, um, you know, again, referring to Kiluch and Dalwen, we have what's known in the trade as a frame tale. So one general narrative which provides a frame within which the storyteller has, has slotted different unique episodes or chapters. So I'm just going to be looking at different unique episodes and chapters and trying to show how they still contain um, a, a symbolic uh, potency. They still are meaningful in a mythological sense. I'm going to be looking at one episode in particular in this session, which comes after the quite famous uh, sequence where Peredir meets the Welsh version of the Fisher King uh, and uh, is tested by his uncles. That part of the story is what most people are familiar with. Um, I know, you know, there's the Grail legend and the whole profound mythology surrounding the Christian Grail legends and all of that stuff, granted. But for me, in Peredir, it's not really the most interesting part of the story. One of the more interesting parts of the story is the section which follows where Peredir is off on his adventures, once again doing uh, knightly things, not things in the night, but things that knights do, uh, righting wrongs, saving damsels, fighting um, other knights, you know, generally being um, uh, a knight of Arthur's court. Peredir comes to what's essentially described as a wasteland in many ways. This is how it's described in the story. Peredir went on his way and came to a great desolate forest. He could see neither the tracks of men nor herds in the forest, only thickets and vegetation. And when he comes to the far end of the forest, he can see a great ivy-covered fortress with many strong towers. And near the gate, the vegetation is taller than elsewhere. Suddenly, a lean lad with reddish-yellow hair appears on the battlement above him. "'Take your choice, Lord,' he said. "'Either I shall open the gate for you, "'or I shall tell the man in charge that you are in the gateway.' "'Say that I am here, and if he wants me to enter, I will.' The lad returned quickly and opened the gate for Peredir, and he proceeded into the hall. And when he came into the hall, he could see 18 lean, red-headed lads of the same height and the same appearance and the same age and the same dress as the lad who had opened the gate for him. And their manners and their service were excellent. They helped him to dismount and took off his armour and they sat and talked. Of course, this is quite a formulaic uh, way of uh, describing the hero of the story entering the court happens many, many times in various other medieval Welsh stories. So this is clearly a story in the Welsh tradition. And they sat and they talked. Suddenly, five maidens came into the hall from a chamber. As for the principal maiden amongst them, he was sure that he had never seen such a beautiful sight. She wore an old dress of tattered brocaded silk that had once been good. 
brocaded silk, of course, being uh, the type of garment that all of the special characters uh, in medieval Welsh uh, stories wear. We can just think of the shining golden brocaded silk of Rhiannon uh, and plenty of others. So it already alludes to this maiden, this female character, being a version of the other female characters in the Welsh tradition, just as Peredir is a version of many of the male characters in the other stories. So we're coming across a, a stereotype here. Now, pay attention. As for the principal maiden amongst them, he was sure that he had never seen such a beautiful sight. She wore an old dress of tattered brocaded silk that had once been good. Where her flesh could be seen through it, it was whiter than the flowers of the whitest crystal. Her hair and her eyebrows were blacker than jet. Two tiny red spots in her cheeks, redder than the reddest thing as if the storyteller couldn't think of something really red to put there, but there you go, redder than the reddest thing. The maiden greeted Peredir and embraced him and sat down next to him. Now, this type of female figure in many, many stories is, of course, very often the female embodiment of sovereignty. Uh, a female character that stands for the indivisible unity and abundance and health of a territory. And this is uh, this maiden's role in the story of Peretir, where she clearly is um, uh, uh, an embodiment of the territory, but it's a territory that's been stolen from her. And essentially, Peredir's role, as in many of the stories, is to regain that territory for her uh, and give it to her to put it in in her possession by fighting off the guys who had nicked it off her in the in the first place. Okay, we see it in many of the stories. There's a few other examples in the in the other romances. Now. This is the stereotypical um, relationship that we're finding here. Um, I'm saying stereotypical as opposed to archetypal because I think by this stage in the tradition, it's lost its glamour, this, uh, this archetypal relationship. It's lost its shine in many ways. It's been overdone so much that I can imagine many of the storytellers and the audience members banging their heads against the stone walls in frustration at this stereotype being wheeled out once again, if only the storytellers could think of another way of describing this fundamental archetypal relationship between the male figure who represents political action uh, and violence and war uh, and the female figure who represents the land and territory and abundance and fruitfulness and the founding of lineages and all that kind of good stuff. So we have this stereotype, which at one time would have been a beautiful, shiny archetype, but it's been degraded somewhat. Uh, and we can understand it uh, in those terms. Yeah. Now to move on. Peredir sees the maiden in a particular way uh, and there's a particular colour coding that's associated with the maiden. Uh, her skin is white, her hair is black uh, and 
she's got two tiny red spots on her cheek. So um, white, black and red is the colour coding, if you like, for uh, this female embodiment of sovereignty. This colouring is interesting. Um, it's not the only place in Celtic storytelling that we find this type of, of colouring. Funnily enough, we find it in Irish storytelling also. In The Exile of the Sons of Usnach or Osnach, we find this description. So Deirdre is the main character, or Deirdre. One cold winter's day, Deirdre was watching her foster father skin a calf outside. Just then, a raven swooped down to feast on the blood that soaked into the snow-clad ground. My true love would be a man with those three colours, Deirdre remarked in a dreamy air. He would have hair as black as a raven's wing, cheeks flushed with the colour of blood, and skin as white as a falling snowflake. I'm just going to skip back so I don't forget where I was. But I'm hoping that you can see there, this is pretty much the same identical description. The witness who is falling in love with the figure that's coloured in this way, yeah? Now, the gender roles are swapped, of course, in both stories, but it's essentially the same thing. So we know that this kind of coloration is part of the Celtic storytelling tradition, but this isn't the only feature of the story that connects Peredir with Irish storytelling. There's a few other places, too, in this section also, where there is a clear relationship between this episode and episodes in Irish myth. Peredir succeeds in regaining this beautiful maiden's lands for her, and then he rides off and he has another adventure, whereby he ends up in another fortress, which is uh, under the uh, governance of another female character, and... The noblewoman says to Peredir in this particular episode, There are nine witches here, friend, she said, together with their father and mother. They are the witches of Caer Loyu, Gloucester, and by daybreak we shall be no nearer to making our escape than to being killed. And they have taken over and laid waste the land, except for this one house. Well, said Peredir, here is where I want to be tonight, and if there is trouble, and I can be of use, I will. I shall certainly do no harm. They all go to sleep. And at dawn, Peredir heard a scream. He got up, quickly, in his shirt and trousers, with his sword about his neck, and out he went. And when he arrived, a witch was grabbing hold of the watchman, and he was screaming. That is actually quite a clever bit of storytelling because we don't need a description of the witch. If the watchman is screaming while the witch is attacking him, then we can imagine she's a terrible sight, yeah? Peredir attacked the witch and struck her on the head with a sword until a helmet and mail cap spread out like a dish on her head. Your mercy, fair Peredir, son of Evrog, and the mercy of God. How did you know, witch, that I am Peredir? It was fated and foretold that I would suffer grief at your hands, and that you would receive a horse and weapons from me, and you will stay with me for a while as I teach you how to ride your horse and handle your weapons. So Peredir is now going to be trained by this witch in martial arts and horse riding. This is how I shall show you mercy, replied Peredir. Give your word that you will never do harm again to this countess's land. 
Peredir took assurance to that effect, and with the Countess's permission, he set off with the witch to the witch's court, and there he stayed for three successive weeks. Now then, this is peculiar. What's interesting in this story with Peredir is that he goes off to be trained in a martial art by the witch, uh, and this appears to be actually quite an ancient feature of Celtic storytelling also. Uh, we need only think of the story of Cahullan. Cahullan then went to the place where Scathach was. Scathach was a famous uh, sorceress or witch who trained warriors in the martial arts. Uh, and this uh, episode takes place in Scotland. So Scathach is a, a Scottish witch here. Uh, in Alba, or Alapa, and bared his sword and put its point to her heart, saying, Death hangs over thee. Name thy three demands, said she, thy three demands as thou canst utter them in one breath. They must be fulfilled, said Cuchulain, and he pledged her and gave her the demands, and Scathach taught him skill of arms. So once again we have uh, a warrior woman, uh, who has uh, magical abilities, a witch or a sorceress, who also teaches a great hero some martial skill. Suggesting that this is very much a feature of the Celtic tradition, <clears throat> and it's quite likely that there were uh, women warriors in the Iron Age, that may well have lasted into the early medieval period. It's difficult to say. Certainly by the medieval period, there's not much sign of warrior women, although, interestingly enough, one of the potential authors of the four branches of the Mabinogi is warrior princess known as Gwen Llian, who went to battle to defend her family. Uh, so women still, you know, obviously did go out and fight, but it wasn't part of the very uh, male-orientated uh, culture that's been passed on to us through text, of course. Which should tell you something of the misogyny of the medieval period. Anyway, that's another matter. What we have here in many ways is uh, a very ancient aspect of Celtic culture being preserved in the 13th century story of Peredir. Again, uh, giving weight to the idea that this story contains many ancient features. But I would say that there's also something else going on here. That the witches, in many ways, are uh, embodiments of particular version of female power that we don't often see. And it's interesting that they're evoked here in the story. Now, it might be accidental, or there might be a reason to it. Some storyteller at some point in this tale's evolution may have structured this story in a particular way, placing the witches specifically in, in the narrative here for a, a specific reason. I can never prove this, but this is one of the ways in which I often think of the story and interpret it. If we just move on through the story, after Peredir has trained with the witch for three weeks... Predir chose his horse and his weapons and went on his way. At the close of day he came to a valley, and at the far end of the valley he came to a hermit's cell. Now, a hermit's cell 
was really uh, a place of contemplation. The early Christian hermits, the early Christian saints, would retreat into the wild so that they could contemplate their faith uh, and pray and come closer to God. Yeah, that's the Christian ideal of, um, of contemplation in many ways. But this may well have been a general practice amongst the spiritually orientated or religiously minded, let's say, uh, throughout uh, the European tradition, not just in Christianity, but we find the notion of retreating in many, many uh, spiritual traditions across the world, uh, of removing oneself from the hubbub of social life uh, and withdrawing within oneself into the state of contemplation. So it's interesting that the hermit cell follows immediately after the witches, and then this happens. And the hermit welcomed Peredir and he stayed there that night. Early the next morning, Peredir got up, and when he came outside, a fall of snow had come down the night before. And a wild hawk had killed a duck near the cell. And what with the noise of the horse, the hawk rose, and a raven descended on the bird's flesh. Peredir stood and compared the blackness of the raven and the whiteness of the snow and the redness of the blood to the hair of the woman he loved best, which was as black as jet, and her skin to the whiteness of the snow and the redness of the blood in the white snow to the two red spots in the cheeks of the woman he loved best, which is, of course, uh, the woman whose fortress was in the desolate wilderness. Now... It's not just that Peredir makes this connection between the symbolic colours he witnesses at the hermit cell, at this place of contemplation, with the coloration of the woman he loves best. He also actually goes on to literally contemplate these colours. But the next part of the story tells of how Arthur and his retinue were searching for Peredir. Do you know, said Arthur, who is the knight with the long spear standing in the valley above? So Arthur and his men, they know that Peredir is a great knight and they're in the story, they're off in the wilds looking for Peredir because they want him to come and rejoin the courts because they love him so much. And Arthur says, who's that knight over there with a the big spear? Lord, said one, I shall go and find out who he is. Then the squire approached Peredir and asked him what he was doing there and who he was. But Peredir was thinking so hard about the woman he loved best that he gave no answer. And of course, Arthur's knights try and fight him and are offended by him because he won't speak. Because he's so deeply in his contemplation. So Peredir is contemplating a female character who is the symbolic uh, embodiment of the land. Yeah? She is the sovereignty figure in the story, which in medieval code is essentially a medieval variation of a goddess of the land in many ways. Uh, that's the mythological lineage that lies behind many of these female sovereignty figures. So this is where it's interesting. Peredir is literally contemplating the symbolic coloration of a medieval version of a goddess of the land. And he does that after he spent three weeks training with some witches. 
Now, again, I could never prove any of this, but that's interesting. Yeah, there's something there to be alluded to. There is a connection between these uh, these events. They run in sequence. And it just makes me wonder, what does this mean? Because this isn't the only place where Pereter's contemplation of the female sovereign figure is mentioned in the story. So Pereder has been backwards and forwards from Arthur's court. Uh, he's duffed up some more folks. He's rescued some more damsels. He's uh, regained some more territory. He's proven his honour several times. He's met some magical beasts and giants and pagans, and he's done loads of good stuff. And then there's one section in the story where he essentially goes to try and find the Queen of Constantinople, and he falls in love with her. And this is, this is how it happens. The next day, Predir got up and armed himself and his horse to go to the tournament, as regular feature of the three romances again, going to tournaments. He could see a pavilion among the other pavilions, the fairest he had ever seen, and he could see a beautiful maiden craning her head through a window in the pavilion. He had never seen a more beautiful maiden dressed in a garment of gold brocaded silk, Golden Brocaded Silk, once again, should tell you something about this female character. She's a special character, almost certainly with uh, associations with the supernatural realm and the broader context of Celtic myth. He stared at the maiden and was filled with great love for her, and he gazed at the maiden in this way from morning until midday, and from midday until it was afternoon. So he does this for three successive days. Yeah, The second day, he does the same thing again. Then on the third day, when he was in the same place gazing at the maiden, he felt a large blow with the handle of an axe between his shoulder and neck. When he looked round at the miller, the miller said, who is actually a main character in this section of the tale, do one of two things, said the miller, either turn your head away or go to the tournament. So once again, Peredir's contemplation is so profound that someone has to literally assault him to break the deep, contemplative, trance-like state that he's in. To me, this is obviously very suggestive. I'm assuming uh, you can all see where I'm going with this. There appears to be, in this version of the tale at least, the 13th century version, this notion of Peredir spending long hours contemplating the female sovereign figure, the woman who embodies the indivisible unity and abundance of the territory. And in many ways, we can see how all of the male characters in the three romances collapse into one type of male character, that being the main hero, and all of the main female characters in the three romances all collapse into one type of female character. Gwen Huivar being the most obvious, Arthur's queen. Yeah, Gwen Huivar being the Welsh version of Gwynevia. Gwen Huivar literally means something like the blessed fairy one. Gwen Huivar is literally described as one of the Tulwith Teg. Some That's what her name means. She's an otherworldly woman who happens to be the queen of Britain, yeah? Arthur's queen. Again, a very obvious female sovereignty figure, a medieval version of a goddess of the land, yeah? 
And it's interesting that one of the more obvious interlacings in the story of Peredir draws attention to the hero contemplating in a meditative way the appearance of the goddess of the land. And it's interesting that one of those visions includes this very clear set of symbolic colours, yeah, black, red and white. Now, we could totally go off on one and say, well, black means this and red means this and white means, you know, maiden, mother crone, it must be a triple goddess and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we can definitely have that conversation. But just to rein that in a little bit, I think what's important is that contemplation by the male hero of the goddess of the land is apparently a theme of Peredir's story, which I find fascinating because it alludes to one of the non-Christian strands of medieval mythology. In many ways, even though Christianity was immensely influential and powerful and dogmatic uh, and exerted its control over uh, the nobility of this period, we still find these older mythological strands being woven into the stories, being part of the culture of the time. So it's not so much that they could only be Christians and nothing else. They, people of this time, were all Christians, clearly. But they also still had uh, access to the non-Christian aspects of their culture, which were almost certainly still very much alive and well amongst the common folk. Uh, of medieval Wales. So I'm hoping that you can see that there is still great value in trying to interpret the three romances, even though on the surface of it they're pathetically naive and all the rest of it and everything else I, I said uh, at the very beginning of the session. But there is still these hints of a much older type of practice, essentially, is what we find in, uh, in the story of Peredir. If you want to sign up for the free Taliesin Origins video course, then please visit the Celtic Source Facebook page, where you can also find other similar bits of content I've created. Just go to Facebook and search for Celtic Source. You can also watch the video versions of these podcasts, image and text slides included, by subscribing to the Celtic Source YouTube channel. Deal